Good morning, Salt City Church. My name is Drake, and I also uh, would love to start off by wishing all the mothers a happy Mother's Day. And I also want to say, whether this is a day of celebration or whether this is a difficult day for you, my prayer is that we can all rally together, as that last song says, and fix our eyes on Christ this morning. The way that we want to do that is that we're just going to continue our series through the book of Exodus. And and we're running up on a, a portion of this book that can be quite confusing to a lot of people. It can raise a lot of questions, a lot of uh, doubts that might happen. But last week, we, we looked at the Ten Commandments, God's moral law. And this week, we're going to be looking at what is known as the Book of the Covenant. And so this is a list of 52 different regulations that God is kind of building this framework for the newly appointed judges and elders to implement, to bring about a just society. And so with these appointed judges from Jethro's advice back in chapter 19, Israel is now under, operating under this theocracy where you're operating under God's rule as a government. And so these regulations are going to speak to a variety of different things. It's going to speak to the proper handling of slaves, to women's rights, to arranged marriages, to the poor, to property, to bearing false witness, and a, a wide variety of other things. And so before we, we jump into these regulations, I think there's a helpful clarification that needs to be made or distinction that needs to be made. And that is between what we saw last week in the Ten Commandments and what we see this week in the regulation. So last week in the Ten Commandments, that's God's moral law. Those are eternal principles that are to be carried out, and it's God's stamp of approval that this is how things ought to be. But the ones that we look at today serve as a, a temporary application of the Ten Commandments in the broken society that the Israelites now live in. And his grace, though he knows how things ought to be, though God knows how things ought to be, that things should be the Ten Commandments perfectly lived out, he enters into their situation and gives them practical steps for how to live in the broken world that's around them. God understands that though he might have freed them from slavery overnight, this broken world isn't going to change overnight. The current structures and the ways of life are not changing overnight. And so he's trying to help the Israelites know what does it look like for them to follow God tomorrow. And we see an example of this in Matthew chapter 19. And so I, I want to direct you to that to kind of color this in for you a little bit. So Matthew 19 verses 3 through 8. And Jesus is talking with the Pharisees. And the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by saying, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? And he said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning, it was not so. So Jesus is saying from the beginning of time, divorce was not in the good and right design of how God created this world to be. But because of the hardness of the people's hearts, God stepped in in that moment 
and implemented a temporary law to decrease the damage that was being experienced by those people. So though God has a desire for how things ought to be, he, he tries to lean into where they're at and give them what's the next helpful step for them to take towards how things ought to be. So an example of this would be with my daughter Zeta, okay? So she is very, um, she holds on tightly to all of her toys, right? So if anyone is messing with any of her toys, she's jumping on that scene. So she has this stroller that she loves, and whenever someone else takes that stroller, she goes up and maybe pushes this kid. And so what I say to her in that moment, I'm like, Zeta, it is not loving for you to push this kid. Now, am I saying that that is the full depth of what love is? That to love someone is to just not push them, right? Like, no, there's so much more to what love is. It's a sacrifice of oneself for someone else. It's saying that no matter how you care for me, I'm going to show up and be there for you. But that, trying to articulate that or explain that to her in that moment, isn't going to be helpful to her. What she needs to hear in that moment is Zeta, don't push that kid. And so in a, in a similar way in this passage, in Exodus 21 through 23, God is speaking to spiritual children, trying to, to lean into where they're at, giving them the next helpful step that they should take towards how things ought to be. Spiritual children who exist in one of the most patriarchal societies that has brutal practices that would cause us to be astounded. A society where slavery was the norm, norm, where children were being sacrificed to other gods in surrounding countries. A society where women were seen as having no rights and masters could get away with anything. That is the society and the culture that, Jesus, that God is speaking into with these laws. And as we look at this text, as we look at these laws, we will see that God's just laws have always been on the cutting edge of lifting up the dignity of human beings. And so the way that we want to do that is we want to look at how God's justice, how his just laws lead to the love of people, lead to a standard of fairness and lead towards his perfect timing played out in this world. And so the first point, a love for people. So if you look at chapter 21, what you are going to see is that the first people God chooses to speak to are a type of people that would be fresh on the minds of everyone in Israel. He speaks to slaves. He speaks to a type of people that the people of Israel were just literally in slavery for 400 years, and he leans in and speaks to the type of people that publicly normally wouldn't be spoken to. Slavery was a practice that happened all throughout the ancient world, and in that time, it wouldn't have even been understood as a problem. Whether it was the slaves or the masters, no one would even see it as a problem, but God chooses to lean in and to speak to them. And I want to make a note that the slavery that's being talked about in this passage is different than what we might understand, what we look back on our own history and see, because this was a temporary form of, of slavery. This was a slavery that for the most part was a voluntary act by the person to maybe pay off a debt or to pursue a better life than they would have had on their own. It wasn't something that was race-based. And even when we look at this, we, we understand that though it was different, it's still not God saying this is right. This is not God 
giving a stamp of approval towards slavery when he speaks to it in this. But what he's trying to do is he's realizing the broken structure that's currently in this society and understanding that that's not going to change overnight. So how do these people follow God tomorrow? What would it look like for them to do that in the current world that they're in? So we're going to look at chapter 21, verses 1 through 2, and we're going to jump to another text right after that. So 21, 1 through 2, it says, Now these are the rules that you shall set before them. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and the seventh he shall go out free for nothing. Verse 16, whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. So in these two verses, and there's more throughout this text, God is trying to give them a picture of what it looks like to give slaves the proper dignity that they deserve as, as human beings. Like, I want you to imagine with me. Again, these slaves are coming, these Israelites are coming off 400 years of slavery, where a lot of the things that happened while they were in slavery is cemented in their minds. They're recalling all the different things that have happened, some of them still wearing the scars that they received while enslaved in Egypt. And so when they hear about a temporary form of slavery that wasn't actually forced, but it was a voluntary choice in order to pay off some debt, and then after six years, they would actually be completely set free with no cost to themselves. When they hear about that, it would be utterly shocking to them. No one was ever forced or sold into slavery. And if that happened, both parties would actually be put to death as a punishment for it. So as they reflected on their own time in slavery, something was drastically different under God's rule. Slaves were protected. Slaves were given a voice. Slaves had the opportunity for freedom. And there was actually punishment that was carried out because they were finally viewed as human beings. Something that would have been drastically different to the world around them. Okay, next, we're going to transition to the next group that he speaks to, and that is to women who were often exploited in this society. So we're going to look at an interesting passage from Exodus 22, verse 16, that says this. If a man seduces a virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her, he shall give the bride price for her and make her his wife. Okay, what in the world is this text saying? In this time, it's basically clearly laying out that if a man seduces a woman and sleeps with her to where she would then lose her virginity and she is not engaged, he must pay the bride price and marry her. And some of you might be asking, okay, what, what, what's the girl's thought in this situation? Like, why would she want to marry this, this man? Like, what if that is not helpful to her? But actually, when we look at this, God is seeking to protect a woman who would otherwise become marginalized in society for losing her virginity. So a bride price was actually several years worth of wages that a groom would pay to the father of the bride for this woman to become his wife. And so this law is saying this man is going to pay the entire bride price 
And he is going to be committed to her and give her the full rights of being a wife in this day. That actually she would be protected and cared for. That the man is going to make a choice that is going to take from this woman something that is so significant in this day for her to become married and to be protected. He is going to bear the responsibility of committing himself to her of actually showing up and providing for her. A commentary said this about these passages. It said, The idea of a woman and women of lower classes having such rights, respected by God and society, was revolutionary in an age where when women were usually regarded as property. So again, we see God creating these just laws to care for people who maybe weren't able to fight for themselves. He goes on, he speaks to parents. He says, whoever curses his father or mother shall be put to death. Okay. Seems quite extreme, but what's he talking about in this verse? He's saying that parents in this society, as they aged in life, would actually become more and more dependent on their kids for their well-being. They actually wouldn't be able to care for themselves anymore. They wouldn't be able to provide for themselves anymore. So the children were called to step in for the parents. And so what this law is trying to protect is trying to protect kids that were seeking their own gain and actually abandoning them, par- their parents for them to provide for themselves. He goes on. He also talks to governmental leaders. In Exodus 22, verse 28, it says, You shall not revile God nor curse a ruler of your people. In this passage, he's saying people who are put in a role of leadership over you, you should speak of honorably and not tearing them down with your words. Where we are incredibly good at justifying reasons why we should be able to tear people down who are in roles of leadership, God steps in to protect them and for trying to get us to see the dignity that they deserve as a human being as well. He puts laws in place for landowners, for the rich, for the poor, for the unborn, for the sojourner, the widow and the fatherless, communicating to everyone that every single person deserves to be viewed with the dignity that they have as human beings. So God is building in the Israelites a proper understanding of what humanity is. And as he builds this through his just laws, what he's doing is working internally to reshape how they see humans to where these these broken structures and the division that exists in their culture would no longer have the opportunity to survive. If those just laws were carried out, it would squash anything in that regard. And so God's heart is displayed in these just laws, and it leads towards a love of people. And the beauty of God's laws is that it leads to a love of all people. And I think we understand in our day that, okay, just laws should lead towards a love of people. Like no matter how many campaigns we see, we always see someone campaigning for a law, And what they do is they pull in a story. They pull in a person for you to see, man, this is how this person would be impacted if this law was implemented. And so we know that just laws aren't just these ideas or laws, but it has implications of loving people. But the issue with our world today is that we have two sides that are incredibly divided. Two sides that would probably look at at a verse or a text like this, and they would pick and choose what things they find worthy to fight for, and they would throw out the rest. 
And what that leads to is that both are fighting for someone, but then we yell across to the other side, yelling how they don't have it right. But what we see and what I've loved about digging into this text is that our God doesn't fit into our political system. He is not swayed by agendas or people's opinions or votes or selfish motives or social media and the just laws that he establishes. And so as we look at these regulations, we see a God who is implementing just laws that speak up for everyone. Not just the ones that align with our particular political party. Everyone receives the dignity that they deserve under God's rule. And so we see a God who is detached from any worldly motive, which gives him the only fair position to actually implement these laws. And that leads us to our next point, which is his standard of fairness. Let's look at Exodus 21, verse 33. This one's an interesting one, all right? So when a man opens a pit, or when a man digs a pit and does not cover it, and an ox or a donkey falls in it, the owner of that pit shall make restoration. He shall give money to its owner, and the dead beast shall be his. All right? So this is one that's hard to maybe apply to our day. It's like, don't you hate it when your neighbor digs a hole, and then your donkey falls in it? Huge problems, right? But here's what he's saying. He's leaning into a very specific scenario, and he's trying to implement some of those eternal principles from the Ten Commandments to be played out in that day. When someone causes damage to someone's property or animals, it's only fair that the judge would make that person repay for the damage that was done. And so the term, you break it, you buy it, wasn't actually made in an antique store. It was actually formed here in Exodus 21. We're saying if you cause damage, you will make restitution. You will pay for that. And hey, you get to keep the dead donkey. That's, that is yours. And so that is the type of fairness that God is seeking to play out in this just law. And he shares another example of fairness in Exodus 23 by saying, you shall not, this is verse one, you shall not spread a false report. You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. You shall not fall in with the many to do evil, nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit siding with the many so as to pervert justice nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. So God is directing the judges to not be swayed by any wrong motives when they're carrying out a court case. He's saying, I don't want you to be swayed by the masses. I don't want you to be swayed by evil intent. I don't want you to be swayed by the rich because they're rich. I don't want you to be swayed by the poor because they're poor. Let no one pull you away from seeking what's true and right in this case. You need to be one step out from all that to have a clear mind that's not clouded by favoritism or ill motives. Everyone is due a fair trial to, to make sure that the right decision is made. God's just laws promote a fairness seeking the punishment that fits the crime, seeking that someone is innocent until proven otherwise, and then in every situation Fairness should be carried out properly because of these just laws being implemented. Okay, so what, what does that mean for us today? Because in the first point, we see, okay, God is, uh, is above our political parties, and so that can almost make us think, like, should we step away? 
But because God is above, that doesn't actually call us to step away, but to lean in. That as we see God's heart for fair and just laws, even in this text, we should be people who are learning and seeking out, man, who are the people that are going to implement laws that are fair for this society and to vote for them? We should be seeking that the, the heart that we see in these passages to be experienced and played out in our day today. Out of the heart that is displayed in these chapters to promote fairness in a culture, we should have the same desire. We should be able to lean in into what is happening within our government as well. The question to ask, though, from this text is if God's just laws are bringing about a love for people and promoting fairness in this world, why is there still so much brokenness today? If God's justice has always been on the cutting edge of human dignity, why are injustices still so present today? And that leads us to our last point, which is God's perfect timing. Let's turn to Exodus 23, verse 20 through 23, that says this. Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgressions, for my name is in him. Okay, so there's a lot of different thoughts on what God could be speaking to in this passage. Some say this is a kind of manifestation of Jesus in the Old Testament. Some say this is an angel that God is sending to step in. But no matter where you stand on that, what we know is that God is bringing about someone from outside this world to step into the situation. And as we look at the, the storyline of the whole Bible, what we know is that is ultimately carried out in the life of Jesus coming to this earth. And as Jesus began his, his ministry here on earth, he says these words in Luke 4, where he's quoting Isaiah 61. In Luke 4, 18 through 20, he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to, bring, to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering a sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And so Jesus is beginning his ministry by citing Isaiah 61 that speaks to spreading good news to the poor and setting the captives free. And as Jesus continued on in his ministry, more and more people became followers of him as they saw him healing more people, as they saw his wisdom speaking into situations, as they saw him bringing people back from the dead. More and more people were following him because they're like, this must be the guy that is going to take the throne, that is going to actually lead this government to be a theocracy again, and actually is going to overtake Rome to where we are no longer an oppressed people. So more and more people are rallying around Jesus that he is the one that's going to take the throne. But here's the issue. Jesus didn't take the throne. He took the cross. And that left everyone who was a follower of him asking, wait, why is this the plan? Like, this doesn't seem like the timing that we have drawn up. This doesn't seem like the perfect idea that we had played out in our minds. God, why is this the plan? And I think in our day, we can ask ourselves the same thing. Like, why is this the plan that's being carried out right now? 
Like, why is this leader in this or that place? Or why are things seeming to lean this or that way? This doesn't seem like the best for God's intent to be carried out in this world. Why is this the plan? This isn't happening in our timing. Or we could ask ourselves in this text, like, why did the theocracy that Moses was under not last? Why did Jesus come, live, die, rise, and ascend, and there's still injustices in this world? Why isn't God's perfect example of justice being carried out today? And the answer is that that wasn't Jesus' plan in his first coming. Because if you look back at Isaiah and what, he, what Jesus was citing from Isaiah 61, he actually stops mid-sentence before he rolls up that scroll and puts it away. A verse that everyone who was listening would have known what he was going to say. People in their minds were probably finishing the sentence where Jesus stopped. So if you look at Isaiah 61, it says these words, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. But then it continues in the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. Jesus drops off the line in the day of vengeance of our God. Why does he do that? Because what Jesus is communicating in that text is that his first coming wasn't to bring about the perfect judgment of God, but was to call a broken world to repentance. His first coming was to set the captives free by drawing people to repentance to come to him. But what he knows is that one day he will come back again in order to bring that perfect judgment to this world. And so where we see a partial look into the justice of God being played out in the life of Christ, where we see a partial glimpse of the justice of God played out in Exodus 21 through 23, and where we see a partial glimpse of it, even in the laws that are promoting our well-being now, we will not see it to the full until Jesus returns again. What we now see in, in part, we will one day see to the full, and actually us having the right expectations of that changes the way that we live and see this world that we live in. So a couple of years back, I was just hanging out um, with my connection group in Iowa City, and we were just playing a variety of different games, and I don't know why, but there was randomly this medicine ball uh, sitting on the ground that I just kind of picked up, and it was kind of just tossing around. And all of a sudden, one of my buddies kind of gives me one of these, shows me the hands. So immediately, my reaction was, to, okay, I'll throw this medicine ball to you. What I come to find out is that he thought it was a, a mini basketball, okay? And I don't know if you know this, but basketballs and medicine balls, very different in weight, right? And so um, he tries to catch this thing, goes straight through his hands, hits him, hits him real good, all right? So he, his expectation was that he was going to be catching this simple basketball. He was not expecting it to be a medicine ball. And so what that means is that from this, or as he was Waiting to catch this thing, his expectations actually determined everything of how he saw that situation. It changed how he thought he needed to react towards that coming to him. And what we see as we look at God's justice throughout the course of the Bible is that we need to have a proper expectation of his justice that we will see played out in this world. 
that actually America is not the answer, that the next election isn't going to be the make it or break it for God's intent to be carried out in this world. Our hope isn't in how the government is looking or going to look to bring about God's justice in this world. There will actually continue to be brokenness in this world until Jesus comes back. Jesus actually says this sobering line to the disciples that the poor will always be with you. And in that, he's saying throughout generations, there will continue to be brokenness. Throughout many different movements, there will continue to be brokenness. We will reach the end of our days and there will still be brokenness in this world. But one day, Jesus is going to bring about God's perfect judgment to this world and make all things right. And as we hear that, again, that doesn't cause us to be people that disengage. That doesn't cause us to be this so heavenly minded that we're of no earthly good. It actually causes us to lean in. Like we want to see God's fairness played out. We want to see his justice carried out in our society today. So it calls us to, to vote for the people that we see that bring, being brought about and to get passionate about people being seen with the dignity that they deserve as human beings. But what we recognize in this is that we need to keep our eyes fixed on the only person that's actually going to bring about that justice to this world. That God in his perfect timing will bring about justice to this world. And when that is our expectation, it allows us to engage with this world while not putting our hope in this world. It will keep our eyes fixed on Christ, the only one who can renew this world that we are in into a world where justice will prevail perfectly forever. And as we keep our eyes fixed on Christ, we will also be directing other people to him as well. Christ will stay the main thing, and he will be the thing that we champion as a people as we seek to have him further in this world, as we seek to point more and more people to him, the only true hope for this broken world. Let's pray. Jesus, we can so often be distracted by other things in this world. So many other things that become our, our main thing in our mind and that can pull us away from keeping our eyes fixed on you. And Jesus, I pray that we as a church family would keep our eyes fixed on the beauty of who you are. That we would realize that the brokenness that we see in our world today, that there's literally no movement that is going to alleviate that other than Jesus Christ and him crucified and him coming back to this world. So Jesus, help us to cling on to you a little bit more. Help us to engage this world while keeping our eyes fixed on you trusting that you are going to make things right in your perfect timing. God, would we surrender to you as our Lord? trusting and looking to you every single day. Help us to be a church that takes the next step that we need to take to walk in obedience to who you are. Would we lift up songs of praise to you because you are worthy of our worship. It's in your name we pray. Amen.